This beautiful day. It's not raining. <laughs> Did you see the sun out there? <laughs> but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Nehemiah 2, verse 3. Uh, DVD series tonight on Samson um, at 6 p.m., Finger Foods, of course, Andrea's number there. Acts and Facts and Days of Praise booklets are here for the next quarter. And you'll see uh, under the helps board, there's a care package uh, collection for soldiers in Afghanistan. Uh, Dale and Pam's grandson, Jacob, is serving a tour of duty there. And uh, we're trying to collect these things for his unit. Uh, there is a list um, posted on the helps board, uh, so if you go by that list. Also, the kids can have a part by making cards. Great. That's, that's a good thing. All right, what else have I missed, omitted? want to start thinking about camp. That's coming up really fast. About three weeks, if I have my counting correctly. Our scripture for meditation is in Psalm, the 35th chapter, read 1 through 16.
Let's stand and ask the Lord to bless our time together. Phil, would you ask? Good morning, everyone. Would you please take um, your Trinity hymnal and turn to page 350 in the Trinity, 350.
Thank you. You may be seated. It's time for a congregational um, chosen hymn. Dr. Ed. Three. That's where we. Okay. <laughs> In the red? 467 in the Trinity. Okay, and why did you pick this song?
Scripture reading this morning is found in Nehemiah, the first chapter, and we'll be reading verses 11 through chapter 2 and verse 6, page 751 in the Pew Bible. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of, the, of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. Please remain standing and take your Trinity hymnal and turn to page 391. 391 in the red hymnal.
Our scripture text this morning is Nehemiah chapter 1 and also going into chapter 2. In our last time we opened up the study of the book of Nehemiah, which as we saw was but a continuation of the saga of the Jewish exiles in their return to Jerusalem under Ezra's leadership. We showed how it is most likely that Nehemiah wrote this account, not Ezra, because verse 1 indicates that this is his history, and throughout the first six chapters, he uses the first person singular. I said, I prayed, I fasted. It's Nehemiah giving his testimony. We also observe that there is a great interrelation between Ezra and Nehemiah. They were contemporaries, they were friends but each having his own role to play in the scheme of God. Ezra was a religious figure who, as priest and scribe, interceded for the people and taught them the word of God. That was his responsibility. Nehemiah, on the other hand, was a political figure, being the appointed governor of Judea and responsible for refortifying Jerusalem by rebuilding the walls and hanging the new gates. Well, Nehemiah was awakened to the problems in Jerusalem when his brother returned and reported to him that the city was, in his words, in great trouble and disgrace. Verse 3. Why? Well, the city was defenseless, had no walls. And not only that, the city was in ruin. And so it became the bunt of mockery and scorn by the pagan neighbors. And we'll get into that more as we work our way through the book and boy they really laid it on the the Jews trying to rebuild the city they needed the walls for protection and uh, you know we have same going on in our country don't we with regard to the southern border our president is saying you need a wall for protection there are people saying "Eh, I don't know and so the battle goes Nehemiah prayed, and for the first thing, that's the first thing he did. And the rationale for his prayer is that God is behind all historical events. It is not fate, it is not chance that rules history. The Lord had broken down Jerusalem's walls to bring her people to repentance from their idolatry. So Nehemiah saw the judgment of God, but By faith, he also saw hope in restoration. 
We reap what we sow. The mess that is in our lives is of our own doing often. But we must remember that the God who judges is the God who will restore as well. And I think Nehemiah had both visions. The Lord has judged us, but the Lord can restore us. So today we want to study Nehemiah's position as cupbearer to the king of Persia and see how God used him to accomplish his will for Jerusalem. Let's come to this text with prayer. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word, and thank you for the life of Nehemiah, godly example to us. We're reaching back into Old Testament history, understanding that God is the same today and forever. He doesn't change, and so the character of our God is seen in the life and uh, efforts of the people under Nehemiah's leadership, and it can be and should be an example to us to so order our lives to be an example of obedience to. We don't want to just be people who are studying history, but we want to be people who look for the spiritual lessons that come from history. And that means that we have a need for the Holy Spirit of Christ to be our teacher this morning. We're asking this for your glory and our good. Amen. Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king. In the first study, we observe that Nehemiah was a man of prayer. Chapter 1, verse 4, For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed. This was in the month of Kislev. Now, they, they, they do their months different. They don't do just January, and then you come to February, and then you come to March. Their months were divided like in the middle of one month going to the middle of the next month. So, Kislev is the month of November, December. Mid-November to mid-December. And that was in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign. And we know that to be in 446 B.C. So we are talking... Four centuries before Christ. You can compare verse 1 with chapter 2, verse 1. So he was a man of prayer. And our text this morning tells us what Nehemiah was praying about. Verse 11. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. The man he is referring to is none other than the king. Nehemiah went to see the king in the month Nisan, chapter 2, verse 1, so that'd be March, April, four months after he had begun to pray. We're adding it up, subtracting it, so on. This was the length of time that he refers to as some days to which Nehemiah refers in chapter 1, verse 4. So what I'm saying is there, there is great perseverance here in prayer. Might shame most of us. I mean, have you, have you ever prayed four months about anything? If we do get the answer to our prayers in four weeks, we lose heart. Stop praying. Four weeks, not four months. 
And yet our Lord taught, keep on asking, that's the Greek of that word, keep on asking and you will receive and your joy will be complete. John 16, verse 24. There's to be an intensity about our prayer life, a wrestling with God about the issues which burden our hearts. And by the way, this has nothing to do with a stingy God who has to be begged and coddled and congealed and appeased to get something out of him. That's not the case. It has everything to do, however, with proving the sincerity of our own hearts with regard to the things that we are praying about. And persistent prayer is essential in maintaining our fellowship with God. God wants you and I to talk to him, to study his word, wherein he will talk to us. And this two-way conversation we call communication. It is the rock-bottom foundation of all friendships, and without it, friendships fade away, and they die. Do you really want to lose God as your friend? Well, if not, then let God's people be people of prayer. We need to talk to our God. So that sounds like just very familiar. Well, it is. (laughs) There's so many religions where prayer is something that's done in a sanctuary or a holy place. People don't have the concept that they can go to God in prayer in their thoughts and everywhere and for everything. Now last week I asked the question, well, why pray? I mean, why do we bother? And I showed from Scripture that Nehemiah prayed with the realization that behind Jerusalem's broken walls and burned gates lies more than the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar. He knew, Nehemiah knew, that God had brought this judgment on Israel for its sin. And when we look at Nehemiah's request in today's text, namely that God be with him and give him success before the king, we discover that Nehemiah knows something else about God. What does he know? He knows that God has the power to work in men's hearts and to give them the proper disposition towards him as a servant of God. We have seen this with regard to Cyrus, the king of Persia, whose edict, Ezra records for us in chapter 1, verse 2 and following, The Lord, the God of heaven, has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. This is Cyrus. That's how the temple came to be. Zerubbabel's temple is really Cyrus' temple. (laughs) Think about it. And in Ezra 6, he even gives the dimensions. This is how big it should be, and this is where you're going to get the building materials and all that. How does God appoint a pagan people to do anything... Let, let alone a spiritual work like building a house of worship. I mean, Cyrus was an idolater. 
He neither knew God nor worshipped God, yet he felt compelled to commission the construction of a temple for Jehovah in Jerusalem. Think about this. Well, Solomon had it right. Solomon wrote, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And he directs it wherever he pleases. Proverbs 21, verse 1. And the king doesn't have to be a believer for that to occur. Proverbs 16, verse 9 says, In his heart a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. So plan away, plan away, but you need to realize you're going to go where God has you to go. Nehemiah understood this about men and kings, and we should too. For all the talk these days of self-made men and of people who have every detail of their life mapped out, we should acknowledge that no one is independent of God. You are not independent of God. I am not independent of God. And even if you are here this morning as an unbeliever and a skeptic, as an atheist or an agnostic, you are still not independent of God. Your perceptions of reality are not necessarily reality. Through bias and prejudice, men's perceptions are tainted to see things the way they want to see them. And not necessarily the way they really are. The bottom line is that God is the personal creator of every man, woman, and child, not just the elect. People can protest this truth by their lips. They can renounce it by their lives, but they cannot escape it. Creatures cannot erase their creatureliness any more than the leopard can change his spots. Nehemiah prayed for God to grant him success before King Artaxerxes because he knew that God can change a man's heart to accept things that he would not otherwise accept. And kings are no exceptions (laughs) because their hearts are not immune to the direction of their creator. They're not. Now, the king before whom Nehemiah is going to make his appeal to return to Jerusalem is King Artaxerxes. Ezra served under four monarchs. Ezra, King Cyrus, Darius the Mede, Xerxes, and now Artaxerxes. Well, who's this Xerxes? Well, Esther was married to Xerxes after he deposed his wife Vashti for disobeying his wishes. And so Artaxerxes would be Esther's stepson. She became queen of Persia about 60 years after the exiles returned to Jerusalem. Being a young woman at the time of her marriage, she would be in her mid to late 40s at the time of Nehemiah, if she were still alive. And if this were so, it would account for much of Artaxerxes' 
favorable disposition towards the Jews and their work of restoring Jerusalem. God had raised up Esther, put her in the Persian court, not only to save her people from annihilation under wicked Haman's plot, but to give the, pave the way for the reconstruction of the Jews in their homeland. Can you imagine this? God manipulating history, putting people in place. But there's more here. Not only is there a king on the throne who has had the benefit of input from Jewish perspective in his history, Esther, and Mordecai, her cousin, you remember him, who raised her as his own daughter, but Nehemiah himself was a man of the royal court by his position as cupbearer. There's, there's some godly people in this Persian government. Wow. We learn something from Nehemiah's work in verse 1, where in speaking of the king, he says, When wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Why would he do it? Well, that's the cupbearer's job. The cupbearer's position brought him face to face, hand to hand, with the king. True, in days of intrigue, when attempts were made on king's lives, poison was often employed by traitors. You'll remember that Livia assassinated Caesar Augustus by lacing figs with poison so that her son, Tiberius, could ascend to the throne. The cupbearer's task in such times was to taste the wine first, and if it were poison, yeah, he would die, but the king would be spared. It's an important position. In peaceful times, the cupbearer was a court official, often an advisor to the king. He held a high position of honor, and his word went a long way in influencing the king's decisions. Remember, it was the chief cupbearer, King James Version calls him the butler, but it was the chief cupbearer of Pharaoh who was influential in obtaining Joseph's release from the dungeon by telling Pharaoh of Joseph's ability to interpret dreams. Genesis 41, verse 9. Another one of these officials. Solomon had cupbearers in his service according to 1 Kings 10, verse 5, and 2 Chronicles 9, verse 4. So it wasn't just pagan kings that had cupbearers. Now we might think of this position as very, very similar to like a bodyguard, uh, but that really is an injustice to the position. The Secret Service, whose responsibility is to guard our president and his family and our retired presidents, are not close advisors. There are men who would take a bullet for the president if need be, but they're not necessarily brought into the president's confidence in regard to political decisions. Well, that was not so with the Oriental Office of Cupbearer. Nehemiah did have the king's ear. 
And I'm absolutely amazed and I'm humbled by the fact that God not only turns the heart of the king in the direction he wants it to go, but he has his people, he has his Esthers and Nehemiahs and Mordecai, he has them right in the palace court to give the very counsel and direction as his trusted human instruments to the king. Has them right there. In the earlier days of Artaxerxes, when his father was tricked into signing the death sentence of every Jew in the kingdom, God moved Esther into the palace as queen by using Xerxes' wounded pride. Mordecai analyzed it correctly when he told Esther, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another source, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, Esther, but that you have come to this royal position for such a time as this. Esther 4, verse 14. This, brethren, is why we are urged by Paul, and I'm reading scripture, that requests and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving givings be made for everyone, for kings, for all those in authority, that we may live a peaceful and quiet life in all godliness and holiness. 1 Timothy 2, verse 1. And we can know that such prayer moves God to move the hearts of those in authority to be favorably disposed towards God's people if it is his will. And in those places of authority are Christian men and Christian women placed by God, raised up by him to speak the appropriate word in due season. It's happened time and time again. But Nehemiah's success was no less dependent upon his prayer to God and being a man of integrity and one who served Artaxerxes as well as cupbearer and competent, his own word on this occasion was taken very seriously by the king. We know that Artaxerxes had more than a casual interest in Nehemiah because of his observations. It's in our text. When Nehemiah carried the wine to the king, Artaxerxes asked him, Why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? Think about this. He went on, This can only be sadness of heart. That's the king saying to Nehemiah, What's bothering you? I see something's bothering you. You don't look well. How observant of the king. But why? I mean, is this the normal observation of a king with a servant? Nehemiah is observed because he always did his service to the king with joy and gladness. He says, I had not been sad in in his presence before. 
and because the king was concerned about the welfare of one of his trusted advisors. What I'm saying, brethren, is that God's people can earn the respect of the unbelieving. You and I need not be the kind of people who just go crashing like bulls in a china shop when we're dealing with the unbelieving. We represent God in our service, whatever that may be. And God wants us to be men and women of integrity and to earn the respect of the community. I remind you that Artaxerxes is going to make Nehemiah his governor over Judah. This in itself tells us the confidence that he had in Nehemiah. I wonder, can you be trusted with your position at work? Does your foreman, your boss, take note of you because your work is done without griping, without complaining? Paul words it this way, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Wow. Like slaves of Christ, he goes on, like slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not man. Ephesians 6, verse 5 and following. I think all employees should read that. Christian employees should read that time and time again, just as a reminder of why God has you at a certain company or a certain office or a certain manufacturing site. This is the Christian work ethic and it's higher than anything found in American corporations today. We Christians are to work for Christ in our vocational callings. We're to build automobiles for Jesus, if I could put it that way. We're to repair machinery for the Lord. We're to do our secretarial duties with the knowledge that God wants accurate ledgers and balanced books. No, God isn't interested in quality cars, but he wants quality people building the cars. Because as Christians, we represent him. We are the Bible the world reads. Nehemiah had the life to go along with his requests. As Nehemiah began to explain the reason for his sadness of heart, we're told that he was very much afraid, verse 2. But he spoke anyway. I mean, God gave him the courage. And when Artaxerxes asked him his requests, Before he responded, we are told again, Nehemiah's first response, Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. I mean, this guy doesn't make a move without consulting God first. Even if it's a short one-liner. Are we like that? Isn't it more true that we often make our plans 
with God completely out of the picture. We decide who will be our friends, who's going to be our future spouse, what house we're going to buy, what neighborhood we're going to live in, what vocation we're going to train for, what we will do with our money when we earn it, how we will spend our time. All of these things and more we do at times with no thought of God. We're busy living our lives just like the people of the world live their lives. And we live them the same way. We come to God when we're in trouble, but in peaceful times God is far from our thoughts. That ought not to be. Nehemiah prayed four months before bringing this matter to the king. And then when he did get his opportunity, he prayed again. (laughs) Just before he spoke. How often we sin at this very juncture. We sin with our lips. We speak in the flesh. We've rehearsed our little speech a dozen times and we know what we want to say if we are ever given the opportunity. So we're ready, boy. We've chosen our words carefully so as to make ourselves look clear and to be not offensive in our requests. But God is never consulted. We think our command of the English language, our logic, our sense of right and wrong will carry us through the day. But we often blow it. We speak as fools in anger, in malice, without wisdom. Our pride gets in the way. We come across as know-it-all. We appear arrogant and we appear self-centered. I give this to Nehemiah. He was afraid to speak to Artaxerxes. Why would be afraid? Because he's the king of the Persian Empire. That's why. He had spoken to Artaxerxes a hundred times before. Yes, but he could not stand on his own gifts of his own position as cupbearer. He had to rely on God to move the king's heart and to grant him his request because it's a Big request. What do you want to do? I want to go back to Jerusalem. Really? I want to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, which your empire and Nebuchadnezzar before you tore down. Uh, That sounds like sedition to me. I mean, why would you want to rebuild the walls? You're up to something, Mr. Nehemiah. could be very much misinterpreted by the king. As you know, after inquiring how long Nehemiah would be gone and when he would return, Artaxerxes released him to go. Well, how long are you going to be gone? Okay, you can go. Nehemiah was given letters of safe conduct for the governors along the way. Verse 7, a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's force, authorizing him to provide timber to Nehemiah for construction needs. Who does that? (laughs) 
Dagon King is going to give him the material that he needs to rebuild Jerusalem's walls and gates. And finally, he was given an armed escort of cavalrymen to guarantee his safe arrival back to Jerusalem. And all of this, verse 8, because the gracious hand of my God was upon me. That's how it happened. No scheming, no plotting, no assassination attempts on the king, no underhanded manipulation, just prayer, just honest speech, and God did the rest. Do we think that way? You say, oh, well, that was back when? No. God doesn't change. He's the same today, yesterday, and forever. But we don't reason that way sometimes. There's tremendous lessons here. Firstly, the prayer of a righteous man, says James, is powerful and effective. James used the example of Elijah to make his point, but he could just as accurately as use the example of Nehemiah. Elijah's prayer stopped up the heavens for a period of three and a half years in which no rain fell, and after which Elijah prayed again, and the rain was unleashed from the skies. Nehemiah's prayer touched the heart of a pagan king and unleashed his generosity and kindness to Nehemiah for his mission. You see, the world has the notion that anyone's prayers are heard by God and that God will come to the bidding of all who pray. But that's not so. It is the prayers of righteous men and women that are effective towards God. Christ has promised to hear his people when they pray. And only God's people know how to meet the criteria of prayer laid down by the Apostle John. 1 John 5 verse 14. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. See, the tough part is getting a hearing with God. The world does not pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. No, the world prays, for its own will to be accomplished. And God is viewed as the errand boy of the one who prays to fetch and do and, in, and instruct. But such prayers never make it to the ears of God because they are permeated with selfishness and pride and arrogance and greed and covetousness and many other forms of sin. There's nothing righteous about the one praying and there's no concern to discover the will of God. They just pray because they think that God is, like I said, the errand boy of their will. Well, that's what God is for. <laughs> of course he's going to answer my prayer. Yeah, but God has a different analysis of prayer. God, through Isaiah, told Israel, When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. 
even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. First Samuel 1, or Samuel rather, Isaiah, excuse me, I can't read my own writing. Isaiah 1, verse 15. But we want to ask God, why, why wouldn't you listen? Even if you pray many prayers, I will not listen. What's going on? God answers, because your hands are full of blood. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow, which none of these things were going on in Israel. So Israel's ongoing sin, while they attempted to pray, blocked their access to God. The psalmist says, I cried out to him with my mouth. His praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But God has surely listened and heard my voice in prayer. Praise be to the God who has not rejected my prayer or withheld his love from me. Psalm 66, verse 17 and following. It's a poor view of God to think that you can just sin day in, day out, violating his law, and then say, oh, well, I'm going to pray and he'll answer my prayers. When the Bible speaks of righteous men making an impact with God in prayer, it is not suggesting sinlessness on our part. No, James says that Elijah was a man just like all of us. And within context, he had just told his hearers to confess their sins. James 5, verse 16. In the case of Nehemiah, we observe that he spent many months doing that very thing as he prayed to God. Nehemiah 1, verse 5 and following. He's confessing his sin to God. The psalmist tells us not to cherish sin in the heart, which means to hang on to it. Christians are righteous when they pray so long as there is an honest admission of guilt concerning their sin. And that is what opens the windows of heaven. This is why no unbeliever makes a dent with God in prayer until he comes to the moment of repentance. We used to say it this way, God doesn't listen to the prayers of the unrighteous, except for one prayer, and that's the day that they repent in prayer. Then he listens, and from that point on. So the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. By the way, Jesus taught us how to pray. He told his disciples, When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. But when you pray, go to your room, close the door, pray to your Father who is unseen. I'm reading scripture. And when you pray, do not keep babbling like pagans. For they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. 
For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Matthew 6, verse 25 and following. Wow. When he says the pagans think they're going to be heard for their many words. And you have Jesus saying, but don't you pray that way. So I'm putting the dots together, crossing the T's. Then does God hear the pagans praying those many words? No. Why do I say no? Because he tells his disciples, don't be like them. Don't pray that way. They think they will be heard as they chatter away. You see, God is looking for sincerity. The second lesson here is that we are cupbearers to the King of Kings. And as such, we are responsible to serve him with the same fidelity and honesty as Nehemiah served Artaxerxes. Do we know anything of service like this? I mean, I look at Nehemiah as he goes before his king. There is sadness in his face because his ultimate allegiance is to an unseen king whose people lie in trouble and shame in their homeland. He's willing to leave the comforts, the pleasures, the luxuries, the opulence of his court surroundings in order to take up residence with his persecuted people. For many months, Nehemiah will jeopardize his life and safety as he builds the walls of Jerusalem in defiance to the hostile neighbors around him who didn't want him to do that. And I think this required personal sacrifice on his part. Personal sacrifice. Is there personal sacrifice on your part as you serve Christ? Often there's not. It appears that we measure our involvement sometimes for the service of Jesus by how much we will be inconvenienced. And if the price is deemed too high, too costly, we won't serve. I know of a church right now where it's a small church like ours, but they're having trouble having enough people to do the treasury work, to work on the building, to teach Sunday school classes for the kids and stuff like that. Not because there aren't people sitting in the pews that could do all of that, but because they don't have their priorities right. Our cupbearer mentality has been replaced with an aristocratic mentality. Like the disciples, we're too happy to have the Lord of glory serve us by stooping and washing our feet, but we sure aren't going to do that for one another. (laughs) Oh, no. We won't even do it for Christ's sake. So I think we must examine ourselves in light of men like Nehemiah and like women like Esther. Fear and all, fear and all, they served. Not knowing the outcome, 
they served. They took the risks. Can I say it this way? They launched out on God. And wonder of wonders, God rewarded their faith and saved the nation to boot. Lord, we need that kind of dedication in the service of Christ. It's not we ourselves that we're serving, but it's the Lord Christ, or it should be. And if it is, then you will do this great work among us. It has nothing to do with our size as a church. We're a small church. It has nothing to do with whether we have college degrees or specialized training or any of that. We just need willing hearts, willing bodies to do the work of God. We are thankful for all of our workers and would petition you to send us even more. Send us the kind of people that will help us to grow as a church. Help us to have an outgoing mission mentality to take the gospel to neighbors around our community. Give us children to work with adults to teach, the unsaved to give the gospel to. We ask this for your glory because you put us here and you saved us for a purpose. And it wasn't to sit around on our hands. It was to carry on the work of God. In our low corner of the world, yes, but it needs to be done. We thank you for the privilege, and it is a great privilege to be cupbearer to the King of kings and Lord of lords, to do the menial, to do what needs to be done even when we are at our wit's end, even when we think we have no skills left, no energy left. Pray, Lord, that you will bolster us for your glory. Amen. Our closing hymn is from the red hymn number 469 in Trinity 469.
first because the hymn writer says the reason we want to see the church is full of people is that they might experience your grace. That would, God would get the glory. It's not numbers we're counting and not heads we're counting. But we're looking to see the gospel reaching people's lives and Christ being glorified for his wonderful message of love. Amen. So we'll see you tonight, Lord willing, 6 o'clock, for our time of uh, fellowship and our study of Samson. We are dismissed.